Lord, I would echo that prayer. Would you just be our vision as we look at Luke 17 tonight? You know, we have an interesting passage before us, and I love that we got to celebrate the Lord's Supper first, because everything that he did there, that we celebrated, that we remembered today, everything that we're going to talk about today kind of hinges on that. Now, that probably doesn't come as a surprise to you, but it's important because that was such a demonstration of his love for us. And in this passage in Luke 17, he's going to foreshadow that moment for us. He's going to talk about a lot of things that will happen in what we think of as the end times. And one thing that must happen as he continues to describe the kingdom of God. Now this is interesting because he's been talking about the kingdom for many chapters throughout the book of Luke. How it's a different kind of kingdom. Not the kind that Rome has, not even the kind necessarily that King David had. There's not going to be a castle and a throne, and yet it's something different. He's described the kind of characteristics that the people who are a part of his kingdom have. And so people begin to ask questions, because one of the things that Jesus will say today is that the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is is within you. And so that's going to beg four questions for us today. When, why, what, and how will the kingdom of God come? In fact, it's actually the Pharisees who asked the first question in Luke 17. If you want to turn there, we're starting with verse 20 today. It says, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. That's an interesting thing to say to the Pharisees, isn't it? Not every Pharisee was a bad guy, but in general, this was the group that we've already been told is seeking ways to trip Jesus up, to put a stop to Jesus, to ultimately kill Jesus. And he tells them, the kingdom of God is within you? It seems like it doesn't quite fit. Well, we'll get to what that means, but first we have to understand that when the Pharisees ask this question, that word that's used there for ask is a little stronger than just ask. It's more like demanded, an aggressive ask, a cross-examination, and one where they don't really believe that there is an answer. I wonder, do you ever ask questions like that? Have you ever asked God questions like that? I think it's good to ask questions. I think, it's, I think God wants us to ask questions. This kind of reminded me, I, I had lunch with a friend a couple of months ago. And one of the reasons we had lunch is because he's interested in Jesus stuff. He believes that God is up there. He wants to do God's thing, whatever that is. And so as we're talking over lunch, I said, well, you know, really the best way to do that, that I've found, is to spend time in the Bible. Right? Like, like see what God says for himself. So he asked me this question. Why would I believe some fabricated agenda that a bunch of Jewish guys wrote that a bunch of white guys changed when their agenda changed? Fair question, I guess, but probably a little hostile. <laughs> like, how am I supposed to answer that? Well, the reason I believe a fabricated agenda is because, <laughs> like, no, not really. But as we kept talking over lunch, and I began to share a little bit of, of how we got the Bible, how it's put together, why I believe that it's trustworthy. By the end of lunch, the question had changed to, 
So it's possible that the Bible really is God's word? Because if it was, then I would want to know that. And what I really appreciated about that in that conversation, what I think the Pharisees might be missing here, is that when we're exploring who God is, we're exploring if he is good, if he is trustworthy, we can do that without hostility. And we can also do that without gullibility. Right? He doesn't just have to believe it because Drew says so. He can ask those questions. He can seek. He can search. We can ask this question. When will the kingdom of God come? Because really, for the Pharisees, they're hearing Jesus teach these things. And he keeps saying, kingdom. There's a kingdom. And they're thinking, is there? Because all we see is a tradesman from Nazareth wandering around the countryside with a bunch of beat-up fishermen saying that the kingdom is coming. (laughs) Yeah? When? Where's your throne? Where's your castle? We don't see it. Rome's still in charge. When's your kingdom coming? As if to say to Jesus, either put up or shut up. And so Jesus answers them, that's not quite like that. It's not something you see. You won't be able to point to Rome or point to Jerusalem or point to Cincinnati and say, there's the throne. It's beautiful, isn't it? It doesn't come with observation. It's not see here or see there. This is then why he says the kingdom of God is within you. I think that really carries two meanings. Because the phrase that Jesus uses there, the word within, is a little bit unique. And so it it, it can be used in two different ways. One of them is to mean among you. The kingdom is among you. So you might hear this in English, for example, uh, all four of my kids played in basketball games yesterday. And so I could look out at the court and say, there are ten kids playing basketball out there. And one of my kids is within that group. Right? doesn't mean that my kid is inside each of the other kids. <laughs> it means that my kid moves within that group of kids. My kid is within them. Jesus says, my kingdom is within you. There's a sense in which the kingdom is at work and is moving in their midst, even at this moment. If for no other reason than wherever the king is, the kingdom is. And King Jesus stands before them. But there's another element to this. Because not only was the king standing there, but there were people with him who were a part of his kingdom. And they are among you. And for them, this idea that the kingdom of God is within you is not just kind of in our bigger group, but is literally to the individual within you. That when I understand the king, when I understand the kingdom, that begins to change things and shape things inside me. Because my desires, my purpose, my goals, the way I think, the things I believe, are changed by the king that I submit to when I'm in his kingdom and his kingdom is in me. So Jesus tells us the kingdom of God is within you. And then it's really interesting because although the Pharisees raised this first question knowing that they were insincere, but that there were people who would want to know more about this, it then says in verse 22 that he said to the disciples. Now this would be more than just the 12. This would be the group that had been with him, people who have been following him, who've been learning from him, some of whom may not have fully decided what they think about this Jesus yet, and yet they are learning from him. They're listening. So he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. 
For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. So Jesus is taking this idea of the kingdom and he's trying to give them a sense that there's a piece of this that is right now, but there's also a piece of this that hasn't come yet. Sort of a now and not yet to his kingdom. The piece that's here now is that Jesus stands among them and that if his kingdom is within them, then his kingdom is coming. He's having impact. Things are changing. People are changing. Lives are changing because the kingdom has begun. And yet, there's also a sense in which, in what we would call the end times, what he refers to as the days of the Son of Man, that kingdom will be fully fulfilled. The time when Jesus will return, God will do away with everything that is broken, everything that is wicked, everything that is painful, every disease, and the kingdom will be complete. You ever long for that day? He's telling them they will long to see those days. There will be times when they long to see those days and they won't. And so there's sort of a sort of an encouragement here, I think, that on the days when it feels like the kingdom is not coming, am I just sitting around waiting for the kingdom? Or is the kingdom within me? Like, do I see the kingdom coming in me even while I wait for the kingdom to come. I know enough of you here, I've talked to enough of you in the last couple weeks that I can tell you the kingdom of God is within you. It is moving through this place, through these families. I think for each of us, we kind of ask that question, is the kingdom of God within me? Am I seeing it move? Am I seeing it grow? Are there things that I've studied in the book of Luke and, and I'll just own this. I, I listen to Chad. I'm like, oh, that is great. I got, that's a thing. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to do that this week. And then like Thursday of that week, I'm sitting with my group study and with the guys that I have some accountability with. And, oh, whoops, I didn't do it yet. <laughs> or, uh, or a month later, I'm trying to clean out my Bible and I find those notes. And, oh, yeah, I meant to, uh, I meant to say thank you to somebody after what Chad shared last week. Okay, write, write that down again. Hey, go ahead, write that down again. Because those are some of the places I think you feel the kingdom is moving, right? God is putting something on your heart that he's saying, follow me here. This is my kingdom come, even while you wait for the kingdom to come, while you wait for the days of the Son of Man. So knowing that they will long for those days but won't see them, especially to the people who are standing before him right then, right? He knows the timeline. He knows that they're going to face persecution and they will wish that the kingdom would just be complete and might not see it. And so I think he gives this piece about the lightning partly as a warning, but also as an encouragement, even an assurance, because he says that lightning, as the lightning flashes out of one part under heaven and shines to the other part, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. The idea here is that it is both sudden and obvious. That's what happens when there's a lightning strike, right? You never know where it comes from, but when it comes, you know it. You can't foresee it, But when it happens, you can't miss it. In fact, I want you to watch this little video of how lightning happens. This is filmed at, I I believe it was 7,000 frames per second. And it's being replayed at 700 frames per second. That you can see the way that this travels. Because this is such an incredible picture. We know that somewhere up in the clouds, two piles of opposing particles 
build up. And nobody knows exactly how it happens, but something causes that lightning to initiate, and then it follows these branching pathways down through the air as the electricity searches for something to connect to. When it finally reaches the ground and connects, bam! That's what we think of as the lightning bolt, as it shoots back up to the cloud and then pulses several times as all of the electricity that was up there is emptied out through that lightning strike. And everything that you just watched happens faster than the blink of an eye. The power that comes through a bolt of lightning instantly turns all of the particles in the air around it to plasma at temperatures four to six times hotter than the sun. Just like that. It is sudden and it is obvious. And I love that Jesus uses this picture Because we have approximately 2,000 years more scientific research than they did at that time, and we still don't know how to predict lightning or exactly how it starts. They have theories, but it's so difficult to study, it's so impossible to predict, that we can't actually see exactly what happens when those particles are initiated. I I believe the, the most scientific term I found for it was that something happens. And so this still works today. We still have to admit that there is something coming that God understands fully. And we don't. And yet we know it's coming. When scientists study this, you go to a thunderstorm because you know there's going to be lightning. But you're still doing like this kind of thing. Because you don't know if it's going to be over here, over there. Try to take a picture. Try to take a video. Try to catch it. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be obvious. It's impossible to predict. But we won't miss it when the Son of Man comes in his day. It will be obvious. Now here's something really interesting though, because the Pharisees asked when, and this is sort of a when, like eventually that's when. (laughs) But notice, in the rest of this passage, Jesus is going to be more specific about what that's like, but first, he says, but first, before any of this, he must suffer. Many things and be rejected by this generation. He must suffer. That really begs our next question. Why must the Son of Man suffer? How could suffering possibly further the cause of the kingdom? Victory, Jesus. That's what furthers the cause. Battles and and victory. Take the hill. Not Not suffer. Isn't suffering what you do when you lose? Why must the Son of Man suffer? See, this was a mystery for his disciples, not only at this time, but even after his resurrection. It's one of the things that, as clearly as Jesus sometimes predicted it, there are moments when he says, I will die, and in three days I will rise again. And the disciples turn to each other and say, what do you think he means by that? (laughs) I don't know. I think he just said what he means. But it was so outside of what they were expecting that still it was a mystery. And here's part of the reason for that. Part of what helps us understand that is actually this term, son of man. That comes primarily from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. So when Jesus says son of man, that term on the surface just means human being. Somebody who was born from a human being. He's a son of man. 
But in biblical theology, that becomes like a title for the Messiah because of what is described in Daniel chapter 7. And so for all the things that we know about Jesus, we call him Christ, we call him Son of God, we call him Messiah, he calls himself Son of Man. Here's why. There, there are a lot of things we could look at in Daniel 7, but I want you to just catch these two parts of his vision. Because the first thing Daniel describes is God himself. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. It's a picture of the glory, the power, and the majesty of God as he sits on his throne. And then Daniel says that he saw this. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, one who looked human. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. In Daniel's vision, he saw someone who looked human and was worthy of all the authority and the glory of the throne of the Ancient of Days. So son of man begins to mean much more than a guy who looks like you and I. It means that he foresaw a human being who would come, who would have rights to the throne of God himself. And it says, when his kingdom comes, it will never end and it will never be destroyed. See, Daniel was looking from centuries past, from the moment of Jesus' life, to centuries to come. But here stands Jesus in this moment saying, but first, this is who I am. This is what's to come. But first, he must suffer. So they knew of the authority. They knew of the kingdom. They knew it would never end. But like Isaiah 53 tells us, and what we celebrated as we broke bread and drank the cup tonight, is that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed because he was going to be the guilt offering for everything that you and I have ever done, as Chad described it a couple weeks ago when we learned about hell, every seed of every sin, big or small, that we can't fathom how evil it is or that we feel like, is it really that bad that needs to be burned out of us for eternity? Taken by Christ on the cross, he said, I must suffer so that I can save. The Son of Man would suffer to save the sons and daughters of men. In fact, in Revelation 5, where we fast forward even from our own time, from this moment, this is what it says in Revelation 5, 9, is fulfillment of this. 
as the elders and the angels and the saints gather to worship Jesus, they say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so Daniel 7 is fulfilled. Just think of the love of God for you and me. Because if be good was good enough, then he wouldn't need to suffer. If, hey, it's not that bad, we all make mistakes, was good enough, then he wouldn't need to suffer. But he said he must suffer, and he did so because this was a moment of love. That God so loved the world that the Son of Man came here to suffer and to die, to be rejected by that generation, and let's be honest, this generation, so that we could know his love and have his kingdom within us. He did that because he didn't want his kingdom to be without you. He wanted you to be in his kingdom. He wanted his kingdom to be within you. And that's critical for what we're going to see next. Because as he goes on to describe the days of the Son of Man, we could ask the question, what then will it be like when the Son of Man is revealed? When we finally get to this moment, when that lightning bolt moment happens, what will that be like? Jesus describes it this way in verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is a hard word, isn't it? I want us to just own that for a minute. Jesus just described two times in history when the wickedness in the hearts of men had become so strong that in one, judgment came suddenly like a flood and in another judgment came suddenly with fire and brimstone from heaven i don't know about you but most of the time if i say fire and brimstone i'm referring to like those people who you know how they're always shouting at you about their religion and like fire and brimstone oh man and then i pick up luke 17 and these are these are jesus words he just said fire and brimstone why I think the reason why is because of his love. Because this is a hard word. And when we turn back to the book of Genesis, we see that in both situations, like in the days of Noah, for example, God says that all of the thoughts of all of the men are always wicked all the time. It was not a group of people that like, if they just had one more day, if they just got one more chance, if someone had just told them about God. The indication is that these were people who had fully and finally rejected God and God's way. And although God was patient and long-suffering, the judgment did come. Same in the days of Lot, the wickedness that is described and the judgment that comes. And yet, in these verses, Jesus doesn't say a word about the wickedness. He does talk about the judgment. He talks about how sudden it is, just like that lightning bolt. And yet his emphasis here, 
Although we know the reality of the wickedness, that that's why the judgment comes, his emphasis is on how normal it's all going to seem. People are buying, selling, eating, drinking, getting married, just like a regular day. When suddenly, until that day, And so it'd be easy for us to think, well, we're not as bad as Noah's day, right? And we're not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, always wicked all the time. I think maybe, you know, maybe our culture is often wicked usually. So we're probably okay, right? We got time. Well, I'll just remind you, this is one of those places where you say like, Lord, just say what you want to say. It's going to come like lightning. That there were people here who heard Noah's warning. There were people here who heard Lot's warning and believed that it wasn't real. Until that day. It is a hard word, but I think it's a word that comes out of his love for us. It's an assurance both to those who follow him and trust him that he is coming. And it's a warning to those who haven't trusted him for their forgiveness. To say, essentially, let me describe something you don't want to be a part of. And it could come at any moment. He said, but first he must suffer and be rejected. Well, that's happened. Sitting here today, we're past that part. We don't know exactly when it's going to come. All we know is that it hasn't come yet. And so it's not too late to respond to this love. I was reminded of a story this week that that explains for me, I think, why Jesus shares something, why he uses this kind of language, and, and why even as he approaches the cross, you begin to see a little bit more of this. Uh, Neil actually reminded me, uh, if you ever heard of Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller, so they've got, you know, their magic show that they do. Penn is the one who's allowed to talk. So if you can picture him, he's that one. So there's a few years ago that, that Penn put up a, uh, a video blog where he was describing his time that after a show, he went outside after the show and there was a guy there, a Christ follower, who wanted to give him a Bible. And basically just told him, Penn, I know you're an atheist, but I wanted to give you this Bible and I just wanted to tell you that hell is real and Jesus is real, but if you trust Jesus for your, give, for your forgiveness, then he will save you from that. So Penn is and still is today, as far as I know, a committed atheist. But it was really interesting to listen to him describe this moment in, in this video because what he said was, as he held the Bible that the guy had given him, you know, even though I don't believe the way that he believes... If he really believes that hell is real and if I'm going there without Jesus, how much would he have to hate me not to warn me about it? I thought that was such an interesting perspective. That if we really believe that hell is real, that judgment is real, that it's going to come like a lightning bolt and that if people don't trust Christ for their forgiveness, that he's the only way, it's not being good enough, it's trusting in his goodness... Penn essentially said, you would have to hate me not to warn me. You flip that around, it's an act of love when Jesus gives this kind of warning. If you've got kids, you you know this kind of warning. When you shout at your kid, don't touch the stove! I know that's a hard word, it sounds mean, but you're going to get burned. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is trying to offer us because then you and I right now have an opportunity to respond. Jesus loves us enough to warn us and so it begs our last question, how can I be ready for his kingdom to come? I think when I read something like this, that's the kind of question that rises up inside me. Do I know that the kingdom is within me?
Have I made that choice? Have I responded to that love? The kind of thing that we celebrated with the bread and the cup tonight. Well, this is how Jesus continues. In verse 31, he says, In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. That last sentence is very interesting because when I read that again in this passage, I thought, okay, I I know he said that before. Where was it? Where was it? I'm looking in John. I'm looking in Matthew. Well, it is twice in Matthew. It's in John and it's in Mark. And this is actually the second time already that we've heard it in Luke. We also heard it back in chapter 9. That Jesus gives this idea that whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. The idea is this momentary life, my way of thinking about this life, this physical life, if this is all I think life is about, you know, when I'm following my own way and my own understanding, if all I think life is about is my treasure here, my safety here, my importance here, my reputation here, if that's all that I think life is about, then we are losing life in its truest sense. Because when Jesus says that whoever loses his life will preserve it, he's using a different idea. In fact, other places that he says this, he says, for my sake and for the gospel. The idea that if we are willing to lose, to hold loosely, to give up if asked for it, the things that are here that won't last anyway, the kind of stuff we heard about with the shrewd steward a few weeks ago, that we send that ahead to help other people find their way into the kingdom then truly our life will be preserved. That it is the eternal life, the kingdom life that comes into us. And so he gives us that that warning again that, that in that moment, and you can almost picture it in the days of Noah or in the days of Lot, like when the lightning bolt strikes, don't try to go grab that TV real quick. You know, don't, don't try to go, Jesus, can I bring my car with me? Like, I remember when I was a kid, the first time that, that I, I heard this kind of passage. In fact, it was probably this, this one. Not to turn back. Don't go back down in the house and get your stuff. Like, sometimes you hear people talk about, you know, in fire safety. Like, if your house was on fire, what is the one thing that you would bring with you? What's, like, the one toy that you would pick? And I remember thinking, well, you know, it's got to be the Super Nintendo. Well, then you read this thing, and Jesus says... Don't go back for it. Like, first of all, there's not enough time. And second of all, you're not going to make it out. And so as a kid, I remember thinking, well, then I better keep my Super Nintendo with me at all times, just in case. (laughs) Right? Like, that just tells you a little bit about where the human heart usually resides. There's this peace in us that so clings to things here. And that's why he says, remember Lot's wife, because she is the most painful example of this. Her story comes out of Genesis 19, and, and there's so many remarkable moments. I, I would say, uh, you know, if you want homework, go, go read Genesis 19, because God warns Lot and his family that the judgment is coming, and Lot is actually given this message. He tries to tell people like his son-in-laws, and they laugh at him, and so then it says, on the morning of the judgment, like this is day of, and they know today is the day, that these angels come to Lot and say, it's time to leave. And then it says, and seeing that he lingered. What? I'm telling you right now, fire and brimstone are about to rain down. It's time to go. 
and seeing that he lingered, I love this moment. It, it literally says, go read it, in God's mercy, the angels grab his hand, grab his wife's hand, grab his daughter's hands, and pull them out of the city. Like, I can see you're having a hard time with this, but we are leaving. It is after this moment, as they begin to flee towards another city for safety, as fire and brimstone begin to rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah, after having every chance, every opportunity, seeing the grace, the mercy, the warning of God, that as they leave, Lot's wife looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. Caught up in the judgment, trying to hold on to things that may be wicked, may be normal, but either way are not surviving that judgment when salvation was right in front of her. I think that's what makes it so painful. Spurgeon once described that if he was, if he was going to go down in flames, <laughs> that would have to be the worst way to be so close to making it out and then to turn back. So Jesus says, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. This warning of love, not to choose this life or the things of this life or the comfort of this life or the things that are wicked or the things that are wicked but have become so normal for us that we don't even notice it anymore or the things that just really are normal. Not to choose those things over the kingdom. Because I think part of what he's telling us here is that, is that when that moment comes, the time to choose will be past. But here's the hope in this warning today. Here's the hope in waiting for the lightning bolt. <laughs> is that we can choose right now. And the first choice is not about good works. The first choice is do I trust Christ? Do I trust the Son of Man who suffered and was rejected as the one who paid the price for my wickedness, my wicked normalcy, and even just the normal things of everyday life? Do I trust that he is the only one that can forgive me and rescue me out of that? Because if that choice happens now, then 1 John 4 says, perfect love drives out fear and we can face the day of judgment with boldness in Christ Jesus. But while we're waiting, is the kingdom coming? Is the kingdom growing within me? Is the kingdom within us? And what tempts you in weak moments to turn back? It doesn't describe a lot about Lot's wife's heart or mind, but I think that moment revealed what was in her heart. And sometimes those moments reveal what is in our hearts. You know, what is it for me that I say, God, I, I know that this thing is broken. And I've been telling myself it's not that bad to do this thing or watch that thing or talk that way or spend time with that person, but I know that it's hurting me and you want me to turn it over to you and not turn back. You know, maybe it's a, a habit or an idol, something that's attached to another kingdom that isn't God's. And you felt that, but there's sort of this lingering well, I think a passage like this is him grabbing your hand and saying, no, we need to go. And encouraging you, don't turn back. 
You know, maybe it's a, a disagreement with your spouse. And last time this happened and you blew up, you decided next time I'm going to have patience. But when it happens again, you start to feel that right now, though, I feel like you owe me. Don't you realize what I've done for you? And you're going to bring this towards me and you're going to say that it's kingdom come. Don't turn back. You know, maybe you've lost something recently. And it tempts you to turn back toward doubt that God is who he says he is, that he's really in control, that he's really good. Don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Instead, let Jesus say, when you are weak, I am strong. Let my perfect love drive out your fear. Let him take you by the hand like the shepherd, like the son of man. And move you forward, help you grow, even as we wait for the day in which he'll be revealed. Because this is what he says in verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. He might as well say that two will be sitting at a Reds game. Wondering if Yasiel Puig is going to figure it out this year. What do you think? And one will be taken and one will be left. Two will be sitting at Carlo and Johnny's waiting for their steaks. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be sharing life over coffee. One will be taken and one will be left. It will seem so normal. And between the two people who maybe have been friends for years, you won't even notice a difference except for one thing. Is the kingdom within you? That will be the difference maker. And in this moment, that Jesus seems to be describing what we know as the rapture, because the word that he says to take really has this idea of take with. It's used in other places where it says Jesus went to Jerusalem and took his disciples. Took with. Matthew seems to use it the other way, that it would be taken to judgment. I think both of them work here. The idea being that we can trust God, we can trust his wisdom. We can trust that he knows the how and the when and that he does not make mistakes. That when that day comes, if your confidence is in Christ, he will gather you to himself. He will take you with him. That is a promise that we have. So after having said all of this in verse 37... As this chapter closes, his disciples ask a question. I think that's fair. I'd like more details, please. Could we have just a little bit more of like, like, I know lightning comes before thunder, so we can't watch for the thunder, but is there, is there something else, Lord? Well, this is what they asked. They answered and said to him, where, Lord? So I wonder if maybe they're asking if two will be taken, one will be taken, one will be left. Where, where will they be taken? What is that? Where is that? Well, Jesus answers this way. Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. That does not help me very much. <laughs> in fact, this is another moment in this passage where it possibly, I might even tilt probably, means a couple of things. Because depending on how you look at this and other places in Scripture you could attach it to, this could be the idea out of Revelation that where the bodies of the wicked, those who did not trust Christ for forgiveness, where those bodies are is where the birds will come in judgment and eat their flesh. Ooh. 
But there are other places that also describe that we're the bodies of the righteous. Not righteous in my good works, but righteous in Christ. Where the bodies of the righteous are, the angels are described as eagles who come and gather them from every corner of the earth to bring them home to their king and their kingdom. Again, I think, depending who you look up, people take this different ways. It's possible that both are at work here because I think that Jesus is telling us we can trust God in the moment that he will do what is right, what is just, what is wise, and what is loving. And so the thing that remains for us today is to ask this question. Is the kingdom of God within you? Because all of this destruction from the days of Noah, all this destruction from the days of Lot, all the destruction that is to come, the Son of Man took on himself for you. So that you can face that day, not with fear, but with boldness. In Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, King Jesus. Let's pray that way right now as we close. God, I am just reminded in this moment to say thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this warning. Thank you for your love. Thank you, King Jesus, that you are willing to suffer and be rejected for us. God, we might ask ourselves today, where am I holding on to things that I need to leave behind? Habits? Guilt, unforgiveness, I I don't know, Lord. I know what it is for me. Lord, where am I lingering or turning back where I need to follow you and move forward? Because God, it's exciting to think that today is an opportunity to move forward. God, I just pray over this group sitting here this morning, over our community here at Horizon and in Cincinnati, Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. We sang this morning, King of heaven, come down. King of heaven, come now. I pray that you would do that within us and within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I want to thank you all for being here this morning, for being on this journey with us. Would you go and let the kingdom come? Thanks for being here.